This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. I felt so vindicated that we accomplished what we set out to do in 2017, which was to not just protect DACA, but to really change the way that we see and how we define what it means to be American. It's an opinion that in its, in its understated way recognizes the equality of LGBT Americans uh, every bit as much uh, as the opinions of Justice Kennedy did. Hi, and welcome back to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the courts and the Supreme Court and the rule of law and the Constitution, all that good stuff. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. I cover some of that good stuff for Slate, and this week represented a a truly extraordinary week. It was an extraordinary week for LGBTQ Americans, for 700,000 Dreamers, for so many people with blockbuster decisions landing in the midst of continued lockdowns, discontinued lockdowns, mass protest, generalized national anxiety, we're going to spend some time really thinking about what that means. Later on in the show, Slate Plus members will get to catch up with Mark Joseph Stern on the Supreme Court term that is circling, circling to a close above us, but we never know when it will end. And he's going to try to answer the question, who is this new John Roberts? Beyond the headline decisions, the high court swatted away a raft of gun cases, a challenge to sanctuary cities laws, and some opportunities to revisit its qualified immunity doctrine that's been a shield for police accountability. It's persisted for decades over the objections of several justices and a surprisingly bipartisan group of critics, but the court did not want to play. We're also seeing inspectors general and career officials pushed out of oversight positions in the Trump administration. That means that even the minimal accountability that's been used to check this executive is sliding away. We also saw Bill Barr's Justice Department file a deeply strange civil lawsuit to try to halt publication of John Bolton's new book, The Room Where It Happened, a book that probably most of us have read based on all the excerpts we've seen in the press. So, look, the country is gasping for breath as another black man was killed by the police in Georgia. New coronavirus case counts climb by upwards of 20,000 each day. And as folks head to Tulsa, Oklahoma, the site of one of the worst massacres of black Americans in the 20th century, to hear from the president in a crowded, closed arena that everything is just awesome. Okay, buckle in, friends. It is a big, fat show, as befits an enormous week. Later on, we're going to talk to Stanford Law School's Pam Carlin. She argued part of the Title VII cases last October. We'd spoken to her after she quite memorably invoked SNL's Pat at oral argument, and it is wonderful to have her back. But first, to another big, big surprise. On Thursday morning, the court, by a 5-4 to four vote, found that the Trump administration's rescission of DACA in 2017 was not lawful. DACA 
is the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program. It was announced by Barack Obama in 2012. It allowed more than 700,000 young people known as dreamers to avoid deportation, to remain in the United States, and to apply for temporary status, allowing them to work. The status lasts for two years. It has to be renewed. It never provided a path to citizenship. And Donald Trump initially said he supported it, but Jeff Sessions announced in the fall of 2017 that it had been rescinded and thousands of dreamers were suddenly at risk of actual deportation. Well, on Thursday, Chief Justice John Roberts joined with the court's four liberals to announce that the way the rescission had been handled was simply unlawful under the Administrative Procedure Act. That lays out how agencies change their roles. The Chief Justice wrote, quote, we do not decide whether DACA or its rescission are sound policies. We address only whether the agency complied with the procedural requirement that it provide a reasoned explanation for its action, end quote. The person I really wanted to hear from today was Luis Cortez Romero. He's one of the attorneys on the legal team that prevailed in this litigation on Thursday. He's a dreamer himself. Cortez Romero, a partner at the Immigration Advocacy and Litigation Center in Kent, Washington, graduated from the University of Idaho's College of Law in 2013, and through his work with a young dreamer starting in February 2017, got involved with this massive DACA challenge brought in California. It was one of three consolidated cases heard by the court. Luis sat at council table when the case was argued in November, something that uh, young lawyers don't get to do all that often. Luis Cortez Romero, I am so delighted to welcome you to the show. Thank you so much, Dahlia. I am very excited to be here after a monumentous win. It's a high that we're still riding. It might last all through 2020, I think. So we're, it's it's been a very great week. Maybe not for D, maybe not for DOJ. Well, that that <laughs> makes it almost by definition. Um, yeah. I'm so 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 glad to to have you on the show. Um, and I thought maybe I know you've told it a thousand million times, but can you start with your own story and how? Uh, first of all, so many of the folks who listen are law students. So tell us about your you know how you grew up and how you got into law school and how that was almost imperiled. Uh, just. Give us your give us your tale. Yeah, so I I was born in Mexico and I uh, was brought to the United States when I was about one year old and uh, I I knew from a really early age that I was not born here, but I never really understood what that meant and my whole life has really been a series of events of trying to figure out what it means and figuring out what it means by its limitations and complications from not being able to get a driver's license in California until eventually when I went to college uh you know as someone without legal status we can't get uh, financial aid and so we had to pay all of it out of pocket and eventually I had applied to different law schools um, but I, again, I wasn't eligible to, to obtain financial aid. So I, uh, it was easier for me to uh, pay out of state tuition in Idaho than to pay in state tuition in California. And so I had to go where the numbers made sense. And so I, I went to the University of Idaho College of Law and it was in my first year of law school where I, I read a, an article in, in the LA Times about another undocumented law student who uh, was unable to take the bar because of his status. And I 
I had not thought about it before then, about taking the bar and how my status would impede that. It was yet another example of how my status, again, you're figuring out what it meant to be undocumented. And so my first year of law school, it's very difficult. I'm in Idaho. It's, you know, it's, it's a snowy day in Idaho. It's around the, the Thanksgiving break. And I, when I got the news that, or when I read the news that I probably couldn't practice law, so I figured why finish? If I don't get to, that's a, that's a lot of work to, to then not get to practice law. So I had called my mom. Um, I was going to study and I called her and I said, you know what? I think come Thanksgiving break, I'm going to pack up my stuff. I'm going to head back to California and then I don't think I'm coming back and I'll figure out something else to do. And she gave me the most stern talking to I think I've ever had. Uh, and she ultimately said, you know, it's, it's hard for people like us to make it in those spaces. And regardless as to whether you get to practice law or not, they can't unteach you what they've taught you. So you go in, you don't come back, you go in there and you study and you'll finish and then we'll figure the rest of it out later. And so I was sobbing in my car because I really wanted to go home. And I was like, okay, I'll go. I think I was studying contracts. I was like, okay, I'll go learn about consideration. And so and so I, I toughed it out. And my law school career was really me trying to make the most out of trying to be a lawyer. And so I, I was working in the, in the clinics. The, the College of Law has an immigration clinic. So I submerged myself into that. I volunteered everywhere that I could to try to get those experiences because as far as I was concerned, I had three years to be a lawyer. And it was in um, the summer of 2012, right when I was going to go into my third year of law school. So I was everybody's talking about clerkships and things like that. And I'm just trying to figure out what I'm going to do with my life after. And DACA is announced right on as I am starting my my 3L year. And it seemed you know, the timing could not have not been better on it. And I was very, you know, cautiously optimistic about what it was because the ask was, Give us all your information, all of your background. Come into the ICE office, which is the enforcement arm of the Department of Homeland Security. Give us your fingerprints. Give us your photo. And if you give us all that information, we promise that we'll get, let you stay and give you this temporary permit. Seemed a bit too good to be true. I was like, I wasn't born yesterday. So I'll wait and see what happens. And and I started to see you know, uh, other people starting to get their DACA protections and a work permit and some of the basic building blocks that we need to participate in our society. And so I applied. I went into the office very nervously, gave them all my information. And a few months later, I was approved. And I know that DACA itself is a temporary protection, but I think it's oftentimes overlooked about the profound permanent change that it does to the soul. It's hard. I didn't know how heavy that sort of Damocles was of the threat of deportation until I didn't have it anymore. And it, it changed me forever. And so um, I was able to graduate from law school. And then I got, I said yes to the first job I could get, which was out here in Seattle, Washington, working in immigrants' rights. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is because I think there's a story we like to tell, Luis, where we say this all starts with Donald Trump. But you grew up in the shadow of deportation threats. Your dad was deported. There wasn't, this didn't start with Donald Trump. This enforcement of immigration laws and the sense that you were living under a sort of Damocles long predates the rescission of DACA. Oh, absolutely. And DACA was really a response to that fear. 
One of the things that President Obama really ran on in 2008 was this protection of immigrants. But what we saw by 2012 is that he was on pace to deport more people than any other president in history. And in fact, he reached those numbers. Uh, by the time, um, you know, at the end of his presidency, he had already deported more people than George W. Bush had done in his both terms. And so, in the immigrants' rights movement, it's, you know, the direction kind of veered off a little bit from let's try to get legal permanent residency and citizenship for as many people as we can to let's stop deportations of young people because young people are being deported in mass. And so it was a sustained nonviolent movement of the immigrants' rights that ultimately, uh, made it so that DACA was announced. And DACA was not a gift from Obama. It was a political concession during a, a an election year, 2012. And so it was very, very important to um, to protect DACA because it, it, it provided us the 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 safeguard that we had lived under for so, so long, including during the Obama administration. So it um it started way before President Trump, and it was important for us to protect it from him. So it sounds to me as though throughout law school you were thinking about doing immigration. This was not something that you fell sideways into. You were very purposive about um, doing immigration law. And I guess I'm curious what brought you to the DACA case, because it seems that you went straight through law school knowing you were going to do this, your first job was doing this, and then one of the first things you did led you to DACA. Can you talk about that path? Yeah, and I, I, this is my favorite story, and I think will continue to be my favorite story because it, I think it has so many intersections, particularly for young lawyers and law students, about pro bono work. Um, when I, so it was February 2017, uh, President Trump had just been inaugurated. And we were all nervous about what that was going to mean in all fronts, but particularly the immigrant front. And so there was a young man, Daniel Ramirez, who got picked up by ICE, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement. And we get a call from his brother, very panicked on a Friday afternoon. He said, ICE picked up my brother. He has DACA. He told them he has DACA and they still took him. And, uh, you know, my, I immediately became very concerned and I said, I'll see him right away. He was detained at the Northwest Detention Center in Tacoma, one of the largest for-profit detention centers in the U.S. And, and so I went to go see him because, I, one, I immediately imagined what Daniel must have felt like as a DACA recipient, knowing that you thought you were protected and, you, and then you, you weren't. So I went to go see him and his story didn't make any sense. He said, I, they, they were there for somebody else. And they saw Daniel and they just picked him up. Later, they said that they tried to accuse him of being a gang member, which Daniel would be the worst gang member in the world. He's <laughs> such a sensitive soul. And and so it started there. And I, I started asking around to see if, and if maybe this was the new normal. I, I thought that maybe the DACA program wasn't going to end structurally, maybe it was going to end by death of a thousand paper cuts one by one. So I then... Um, this is on Friday. I then get contacted uh, by Mark Rosenbaum, who is uh, he was at a, the ACLU for forty years now, a public counsel. He contacts me and he he says like I heard about this, you know, your your client uh, Daniel's case, um, and I want to help if if it's possible. And I said, yeah. I was like, I'm still in the early stages. I just met him yesterday. Got to figure out all of what's happening. And he said, okay, well, let's talk tomorrow. And I said, okay. And so um, 
tomorrow comes now Sunday, and he calls me and he goes, I am here in Seattle. I flew up here, and uh, would you mind if we meet and met with Daniel? So I said, oh, okay, I guess that's my Sunday now. <laughs> I pick him up at the airport. We head down to the detention center. And he's asking me a few questions about DACA. We meet with Daniel. Daniel gives us this, you know, really heartbreaking story saying, I told them I had DACA. They said that they didn't care. Um, and, and so we're leaving the detention center. And Mark says, let, let, let's go to your office and let's meet for a little bit. As we're driving to my office, he's on the phone and he says, uh, I, we're heading to his office now. We'll meet you there. And I'm thinking, we meet you there? Who's we? Yeah. And so uh, we get to my office and is there where I meet um, this other lawyer by Ethan, De- his name is Ethan Detmer. He's at a partner at Gibson Dunn. And so us three, we start meeting in my conference room about what is DACA really? What are its legal contours? What's his jurisdictional provisions? And we start getting into the real nitty gritty of what DACA is and it isn't. Um, and ultimately, uh, we start, we can't wrap our reins around it. And Mark says, I know who we can call. And he, and he, you know, puts his phone on speakerphone. He calls somebody and we start, he starts asking about constitutional provisions. And I hear the voice and I recognize it immediately, almost from like a post-traumatic stress disorder from the bar prep because it was Dean Chimerinsky on the phone. And I was starstruck and a little like, I remember that from the bar, you know, from the bar prep. And so he, then he got on the phone and then uh, Mark had called Professor Leah Lippman, uh, who at the time was at UC Irvine. And then uh, he had called Professor uh, Lawrence Tribe. We were trying to all figure this out together. And this Sunday is moving now a lot faster than I thought it would. And so we ultimately think, oh, I don't think it's going to work. I don't think that this, the DACA, uh, you know, it has, um, I don't, you know, we think that it's going to be defeated in jurisdiction. So we call it a night and just chalked it up to be a really weird Sunday. Later that night, uh, Mark calls me and he says, I think we figured it out. Let's jump on a phone call altogether and we have to draft this right away and file it by tomorrow, Monday. And I laughed because I thought he might have been kidding of drafting all night, but no, we, uh, had, had got a team together. The, the Gibson Dunn law firm brought its whole team. The public counsel team brought its whole team and together overnight, we drafted a complaint about the protections of DACA. And that ultimately served as the blueprint of the jurisdictional issues, the provisions, and all of these things that when DACA was rescinded in September, a few months later, we already had some of the the strong uh, doctrine and arguments that we were able to use in district court. And so when DACA was terminated, we saw that the state of California filed the lawsuit, the UC Regents filed the lawsuit. But we wanted to make sure that we filed a lawsuit that told the stories of the DACA recipients, the interest of us who are going to be impacted. We already had a great team to, to, to begin with. And so we decided, okay, let's stick together. We, we're doing it with Daniel's case. Now we're going to take this on a more national scale. And that's how it all started. First of all, I think the the idea of you sitting in a conference room getting goosebumps over Erwin Chemerinsky <laughs> and Leah Lippman and Larry Tribe is is the dorkiest, most beautiful thing. Uh, Only I am getting parallel goosebumps from those names. Um, Talk a little bit about, because I think it's important. I think you said something that becomes, in a weird way, the spine of, of John Roberts' opinion, which is there's this reliance interest that a lot of people, I mean, you led with this, 
but a lot of people changed their lives in reliance on DACA. And that seemed to be part of the keyhole that got to the chief justice on Thursday. I think that's exactly right. And one of the things that was important to us was that it wasn't just the DACA recipients that relied on it. It was the entire community that relied on it. The teachers and their students, the doctors and their patients, the lawyers and their clients. We're talking about millions of people here who relied on the government's promise. And, you know, in order to shift char- sharply that, that policy, there needs to be much more consideration than just an overnight you know, change of heart, it seemed like. And so I think that's exactly right. And, and you know, we knew, and I think that's why it was so important to tell the stories of what DACA recipients are contributing to to our community because, um, you know, it, it, it becomes a fabric of what makes America work. And, and, and I think without it, and without even taking those interests into consideration, was very problematic. And, and I'm so glad that Chief Justice Roberts saw that because that was really the message that we were trying to get across. One of the things that I remember talking to the to the plaintiffs in September 2017, and uh, I asked them if they wanted to be part of this case. And I, one of them told me, he's like, let me just make sure I understand what you're asking of me. You want me to be part of a lawsuit that's taking on one of the most powerful governments in the the world, the U.S. government, uh, for immigrants' rights. That's what you're asking me to do, and you know, I was like, yeah, that you know, no big deal. <laughs> That's what I would like. And and but what what we what I promised them, I was like, I can't promise you that we're going to win, but I can promise you that they were going to hear our stories. And and that's what we set out to do. Really, is for them to hear our stories. And so um, I think ultimately that's what got us to where we needed to go. And, and, and let's just pause for a minute and really reflect on the fact, I said it in the intro, but I want to say it again. This is not just telling your story. This is making yourself visible as also subject to deportation yourself. I mean, this is the the downside, not just for the plaintiffs, but for you, are immense. This is not what ordinary lawyers subject themselves to. I think that's right, you know, and I would be lying if I said that I, you know, there wasn't a large parts of these moments where I wasn't scared. And I think really what it came down to is doing it anyway. Um, and and I know that, you know, there, there's a lot of people that before me that really risked themselves to get DACA protections. Um, and there's a lot of people that were deported over it. And... I knew that I was in a position of immense privilege of not just having DACA, but being a lawyer. Um, when I was going through law school, I didn't know any other DACA recipient lawyers. I didn't know any other undocumented lawyers. And I feel so lucky to get to do this. And so I, I knew that I, I, I couldn't let that go to waste. And so, um, you know, I, I had talked about it with, um, you know, our, the rest of our legal team, our, our, our colleagues, uh, about what this would mean. And, and we knew that this was important. Um, and I also felt so supported by, um, the, you know, my colleagues, the other lawyers I was working with. I, I wasn't doing this alone. And I know that I had people who really cared about us and me. And I, I'm very thankful for them, um, to, because I, I wouldn't, 
I, I don't know if I would have been able to do this without them. And I, I, it gave me the courage that I needed to, to do it, even though it was, it was very scary. So uh, you were at arguments, you were at council table, you yes. were, you know, in the big show. Uh, and you probably saw what all of us saw, which is that it did not appear to be going well. Uh, I didn't have a lot of inklings that John Roberts was particularly susceptible to the arguments that y'all were making. But I wonder if I missed something, if you saw something, or if something got through to him after. I'm just curious if I was talking to you the day after arguments, if uh, you would have said to me, oh, yeah, no, we got him. (laughs) No, I, you know, I, I think we left out of there concerned. It, it's, it's hard to make out, you know, from the questions what their ultimate intention was, but I, it didn't, it didn't feel optimistic <laughs> leaving those, leaving the courtroom. I, I think since the argument, I think there's two things that happened. I, I think one, the Department of Homeland Security and at the time, uh, Solicitor General Noah Francisco, he had, uh, explained to the Chief Justice John Roberts that, uh, dreamers will not be deported if DACA ends. He made that, uh, that statement very clear and Chief Justice Roberts asked it and make sure to, to get a, a clear answer. That changed. Um, that changed this year in January. They have now said that they will proceed with enforcement and proceed with deportation. Um, and so we, we make sure to let the court know that, um, there was a post uh, argument brief that was filed and also the pandemic i think has a big play into it the uh the a lot of the doca recipients are uh, healthcare workers. And, and, and weirdly enough, uh, the American Medical Association submitted an amicus brief talking about the importance of the healthcare workers. And, and, and a part of the brief said, you know, in the event there's a global pandemic, the DACA healthcare workers are going to be very important. And lo and behold, there's a global pandemic. I mean, this brief was submitted in October of 2019. And so I think the different contours of where, what the consequences were going to be really highlighted the reliance interest that we were trying to highlight from the beginning. And I think they made them much more apparent and concrete. And so I don't know if it necessarily changed the argument, but I think it made it much more apparent that these things were not considered. And we are seeing what the consequences of those reliance interests really would be like now. Um, so I think that had a lot to do with it. Uh, I, you know, one of the things that happened earlier in the week was that we had a case that or have protections for the LGBT community in the employment setting. And that decision makeup was, I, I think, unexpected. And to me, one of the things that it showed is, well, I, maybe I can't, maybe I can't guess how the court is going to decide. I, I, you know, and so I, it left me more confused than anything. Um, and, and so when I saw the decision and saw that Chief Justice Roberts, um, sided with us, I, uh, you know, I was I was very pleasantly surprised. I was expecting a a bit of a sympathetic opinion of "we're so sorry, but we're going to have to end this program." Uh, that's what I was expecting. And but you know, it it um, I think it's now the second time that Chief Justice Roberts has told the uh, presidential administration, "It's not. We're not saying you can't do it. You just didn't do it right." So uh, we saw that with the census case as well. 
I, I wonder if that makes you anxious. It makes me quite anxious, Louise, that, you know, I, I liken this to like my kids turning in a really crap paper and having, you know, the instructor say, do it again and do it right and you can fix it. And it seems that there are parts of the Roberts opinion that are almost literally a roadmap to yeah. if DHS had done this, if they had claimed this, if they had just done it, like, all you have to do is do this. And uh, I might think differently. And I wonder if that isn't slightly terrifying to you, that a slightly smarter DHS and a slightly better attorney general could have done this very, very easily, it looks like. Yeah, there's a bit of me that is is concerned about that. What I What I consider is, one, they could have done this this whole time. <laughs> the the you know that was part of our argument. Our argument wasn't ever he can't do it. It was just you know, the procedure of it was was not correct. And so they could have just redone it at any point in the course of the litigation, and they didn't do it. And I think it's because they want to keep at arm's length of the decision. They really wanted to hide behind the court uh, because the DACA program is an overwhelmingly supportive program in America. And so to own that decision, I think is going to do a lot politically. And now the, you know, if he decides to terminate the program now and follows the Administrative Procedures Act, it's going to go into November and he's going to have to then terminate a program that's very supportive and he's going to have to do that. It's not cost neutral. There's going to be some political consequences into that. And so he's going to have to decide that. I, 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 I think my anxiety about it will increase if he is reelected to a second term so that he has that process to do so. Um, so, you know, what it does is that it kind of reconfigures the Rubik's Cube of what the conversation is going to look like uh, in this political election. Um, and so, so, you know, what, what's going to happen to the fate of dreamers if, if it goes on? And I, I suspect that we probably won't have, he won't have enough time to do it before the election. So it kind of, if there wasn't already enough of a spotlight in this election, there is a much brighter one now. Especially, as you said, with the data around how much dreamers have contributed on the healthcare front uh, in the pandemic, I can't imagine this would only look worse uh, to do it mid-pandemic, mid-COVID. I I a hundred percent, and he, you know, part of the Administrative Procedures Act is to consider what is happening and and whether the poli- the change of policy outweighs that, and so he's going to have to explain all of that. Um, one of the things that I am keeping a close eye on is the structural integrity of DACA is now in place. It continue, we've had protected it from uh, President Trump just terminating it outright. But I, Daniel's case is now back at the ninth. It's now at the ninth circuit, and he now I think now more than ever Daniel's case is really important because uh, we don't want the administration to do the death by a thousand paper cuts that we thought he was going to do in February and just keep the program but just chop the persons. And so uh, part of what we're trying to do with Daniel's case is to make sure that the uh, the Department of Homeland Security continues to play by the rules even on an individual basis um, so that it doesn't, uh, you know, essentially leave just the shell of the program. Right. So I also want to ask you about this equal protection part because that's yes. the poison pill here, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, in the touchdown dance, we miss the fact that not only 
was there no sort of constitutional finding that there was racial animus, but there was only one vote, right? John Roberts writes, there's not a scintilla. Uh, they've made no showing of racial animus. It, it cannot be an accident that it's Sonia Sotomayor writing for herself alone, who goes through Donald Trump's history of slurs against Mexicans and says, you know, the idea that this does not amount to a showing, at least for purposes of this litigation, that there's animus, garners no votes. So I guess I want to ask, that that is a loss. I mean, that would have been nice to, to get five votes for that. But I wonder if you agree with some of the folks who said the poison pill in here is that that opinion makes such a showing harder going forward. It, it, it was it was difficult, I think, for me to really wrap my head around why it was there in the first place. You know, the Chief Justice Roberts could have d- decided on the APA ground and then just not uh, ruled on the constitutional provisions on the case and just kind of disposed on it that way. So it was a big it was a bit surprising for me to have him comment on it. It seemed a bit gratuitous. To the extent that he did, I it, it was a bit disappointing to see the the, the the there wasn't more votes on the racial animus component, at least to this component of the litigation. Right, we're here in a, um, a preliminary injunction. We just have to make a showing that there's some racial animus to move forward with the case, and we you know we had our courtroom doors closed on that. Um, We knew that after, during the course of the litigation, of the DACA litigation, the Hawaii versus Trump case came out. And that happened right in the middle of it. And so that really changed the, the landscape of how this discourse of of or, uh, political speech and uh, is ultimately ingrained in policymaking. And so we knew it's going to be a tough, a tough argument anyway, but it was really disappointing that it didn't get more votes in that. Justice Sotomayor was the only one who saw the race component here that we all felt really, we all felt it. It's, you know, oftentimes the trouble with racial animus is that it's, is cloaked in dog whistles and things that, you know, coded words. And, um, you know, you don't say it in one aspect, but you say it in others. And so, it, it was a bit disappointing, you know, and I and I think we're going to have to continue moving forward to to show, you know, what racial and social justice looks like in legal justice. The Hawaii case, we should just flag that was the travel ban case uh, that the court determined was not uh, motivated by racial animus. It's true. I I came away thinking. Luis, that John Roberts was willing to split the baby insofar as he would say Donald Trump is sloppy, but he's not racist. I mean, that's how you can read this acceptance on the APA and uh, absolute retreat from the, the equal protection animus question. And it's frustrating because, as you say, and as Justice Sotomayor said, uh, this is some seriously racist talk uh, that that gets swept away. I, I guess before you go, I want to ask you, just as you, as Luis, how is your life different today from a week ago? What do you, I mean, in addition to being able to exhale, at least for a little <laughs> while, what's changed for you? And what's to come? I felt so vindicated that we accomplished what we set out to do in 2017, which was to not just protect DACA, but to really change the way that we see and how we define what it means to be American. 
And I think through the course of the DACA litigation, more people became aware of what DACA was, what was at stake, who were the DACA recipients in their community. And I feel so proud of the work that we've done um, and the, what we were able to do. And um, I am I'm feeling so much more hopeful about our future in a time where there's so much that you know, it, it, it puts a damper on, on, on our communities. And I think, I oftentimes think that it's not, you know, we co- measure our communities not by the bad things that happen, but how the community reacts to those bad things that happen. And I think this is a really great showing to that. And also really reminded me about the, the importance of our court system. You know, being a lawyer and, and, and working in immigration law where I often have to study about other countries' governments and how they operate. One thing that makes America so amazing, it's its court system. It's its court system. And it's imperfect. But, you know, historically, we have seen that it's the court system that has uh, protected the rights of some of the most marginalized. And so I am, I am so proud and and excited to be a part of it. You know, it, it feels like it's not just a coincidence that DACA was not only the thing that allowed me to practice law, but then I get to protect that program for others. And so it, it's, you know, I it's going to take me a little while to reflect, I think, fully, but it, it was an amazing moment. And I, it gives me a lot of hope for the future, um, regardless as to, you know, who is in charge. We know that we as a community are going to do the right thing. So I'm, I'm, I'm very hopeful and happy about the outcome. Uh, Luis, I've been doing this show for a very long time and only doing it uh, on Zoom since uh, shelter in place since March. And uh, yet this is the first time where I'm just so freaking glad I get to see your face and to tell you uh, really, truly, I, I think you represent that which is best um, about the American legal system. And I'm just very, very glad that you took a little time to to be with us this week because, like I said, I definitely needed to hear from you. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much, Dolly, for having me. It was such a pleasure. Luis Cortez Romero is one of the attorneys on the legal team that won big time in the DACA litigation at the Supreme Court Thursday. He is a dreamer himself and a partner at the Immigrant Advocacy and Litigation Center outside Seattle, Washington. Thank you for being here. Thank you. On Monday, way back on Monday, in an opinion so vast, we couldn't actually download it for almost 40 minutes. The U.S. Supreme Court handed down a six to three opinion finding that workplace discrimination against two gay men and one transgender woman is unlawful under Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. This is a watershed case Some say a bigger win even than the marriage equality cases. And yet, two of the three litigants in this case did not live to read the holding. Last October, we spoke to Pam Carlin. She argued two of the three consolidated cases on behalf of Gerald Bostock, a child welfare coordinator in Clayton County, Georgia, fired after he joined a gay softball league, and Donald Zarda, a now-deceased skydiving instructor, fired for telling a woman not to be afraid of being strapped tightly to him because he was gay. 
The third case was brought by Amy Stevens, who'd worked for six years as a male funeral director in Michigan, but was fired two weeks after she told her boss that she was transgender. Amy Stevens died earlier this spring. The surprise on Monday was that Justice Neil Gorsuch, a Trump appointee and avowed conservative, joined the court's liberals and Chief Justice John Roberts to pen an unequivocal ruling that the plain text of Title VII bars discrimination because of sex. Quote, it is impossible to discriminate against a person for being homosexual or transgender without discriminating based on sex, he wrote. That was precisely the argument that Professor Carlin made before the court in October. Let's have a listen. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. When an employer fires a male employee for dating men but does not fire female employees who date men, he violates Title VII. The employer has, in the words of Section 703A, discriminated against the man because he treats that man worse than women who want to do the same thing. And that discrimination is because of sex, again in the words of Section 703A, because the adverse employment action is based on the male employee's failure to conform to a particular expectation about how men should behave, namely that men should be attracted only to women and not to men. Pam Carlin is co-director of Stanford Supreme Court Litigation Clinic. She's an assistant counsel and cooperating attorney for the NAACP Legal Defense Fund and a deputy assistant attorney general in the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department under Obama. Pam also co-hosts Stanford Legal on Sirius XM and is the co-author and author of a Kefillion Books on Con Law. Pam Carlin, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much, Dahlia. It's great. It's great to be back. Pam, I wonder if we could start at the very, very beginning here. Just the basics, lay the table. What does Title VII say? Which groups does it protect? And how is it that all this matters? So Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act covers any employer in the United States that has more than 15 full-time employees. Uh, And what that means is a majority of American workers are covered by Title VII, but a majority of American employers aren't because there are so many businesses that have fewer than 15 full-time employees. And what Title VII says is that a covered employer cannot discriminate by refusing to hire somebody, by firing somebody, or by changing the terms and conditions of someone's employment because because of that individual's race, color, national origin, religion, or sex. Uh, And in the cases we're talking about, it was that last one that was at issue. What does it mean to say that you've discriminated against somebody because of such individual's sex? Pam, can you just remind us if you know how many times Congress has tried and failed to amend Title VII so as to bar discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity? Well, there have been a series of bills proposed in Congress that would make explicit that because of sex includes uh, sexual orientation or gender identity or the like. I didn't keep full count of them because, uh, as you may remember, our position in the case was, it doesn't matter whether Congress tried to do this later, because our claim was Congress did this in 1964. Also, just in the interest of setting the table, talk a little bit about what the federal courts have done in the absence of having amended language uh, to Title VII, and maybe also uh, the role of the EEOC in changing how we have come to understand Title VII. 
as I said to the justices um, when I did the argument in uh, October, there were a number of early cases in which courts of appeals suggested, almost in passing, that Title VII would not reach firing somebody for being gay. But those cases had literally no analysis at all in them. Uh, and several of those cases didn't even involve uh, discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. So the first of these cases was a case where a black gay man sued his employer and said, you're treating me worse than white gay men. Now, that's a race discrimination case. That's not a sex discrimination case. And it really wasn't until the Seventh Circuit's uh, opinion in Hively, which is about three or four years ago now, that any court really sat down, looked at the language of Title VII, and worked its way carefully through that language. And since that time, a majority of the lower court judges that looked at Title VII said it does forbid discriminating against somebody for being gay or for being transgender. And just as briefly as you can, and I know it's a complicated opinion, but can you sketch out what it is that Neil Gorsuch, joined by the Chief Justice and the courts for liberals, what it is that he holds and what it is that he roots that in? Yes. So I could do it really quickly and say in three words, what he held is read the text. Um, what he said was when the text talks about sex discrimination, when it talks about discriminating because of sex, what that means is if a man and a woman do exactly the same thing and you fire one of them, but not the other, that's sex discrimination. And the example he gives is if a man and a woman both date somebody named, you know, named Charles, and you fire men who date Charles, but you don't fire women who date Charles, that's sex discrimination. And that's what it is to fire somebody for being gay. You're firing them for something that if they were of the opposite sex, if they were of a different sex, you would not fire them for at all. You wouldn't object to. And before we dig in to the majority opinion and the dissents and the wrangling over how he gets there, Pam, while we're here, I, I wonder if you can help me understand a question that I've been asked in interviews all week long. Every other major LGBTQ rights case that has come before the court has been written by Anthony Kennedy in really soaring, powerful language about dignity and equality and respect and regard and choices. This is not that. This is strip bare. There is not a lot of solicitude for the sort of long struggle in the history. In fact, we can talk about it later. Kavanaugh, Justice Kavanaugh's dissent seems to be more willing to recognize that this has been a decades-long fight. And yet, there's a way in which the stripped-down quality, while maybe there's not a lot of dicta there to lean on, it gets the job done. And I wonder if having you have done so much litigation that's sort of reliant on the big picture and the soaring rhetoric of Anthony Kennedy, whether this feels like a ripoff or if it feels like maybe there's something to be said for just the, the bare bones analysis that Gorsuch gives you. So I don't think of it as a ripoff at all. I think of it as the court is going to apply the same kind of textual reading to the rights of gay Americans and the rights of transgender Americans as everybody else. In its own interesting way, this is actually a huge and soaring victory because what Justice Gorsuch is saying is 
we are going to apply the standard tools. And when those standard tools give gay Americans and transgender Americans uh, their rights, we're not going to flinch from that. Uh, and it's in that sense, it's really almost an equal protection decision interpreting a statute, which is we're going to, you know, if firing people because they're mothers, that is women with children at home, is sex discrimination. And the Supreme Court held that it was in its very first sex discrimination case, the Phillips against Martin Marietta case, then we're going to say firing a woman for having a wife at home uh, is uh, discrimination because of sex. And so in that sense, it's a it's an opinion that in its in its understated way, recognizes the equality of LGBT Americans uh, every bit as much uh, as the opinions of Justice Kennedy. And I think you've probably at least partly answered my follow-on question, which is some of when, and I, I don't even know what to make of the game of how big a deal is this, but almost immediately there was a lot of, oh, this is a bigger deal than Obergefell. Oh, it's not as big a deal. Um, you know, it affects more people, more gay Americans um, want to work maybe than get married. So I, there was a lot of kind of totting up the numbers to determine whether this mattered more. Uh, in addition to the claims that I heard that there's just not enough soaring language here, I did hear this is just a statute. It's not a constitutional case. And so it by necessity, has less force and meaning going forward uh, than Obergefell did. But I think I'm hearing you say uh, that's actually not factually correct either. I, I think that's right. That is, this doesn't have uh, the kind of poetic language that Justice Kennedy often strove for, um, which was both, uh, you know, a strength in the public, but also sometimes a weakness in the opinions. That is, coming out of Justice Kennedy's opinions, you don't know whether discriminating against somebody because they're gay uh, requires a heightened level of scrutiny or not. Um, all you know is this particular thing deprives gay people of dignity. Um, and, you know, Justice Gorsuch's language is not poetic in the same way. Indeed, Justice Gorsuch, I think, kind of revels in the chatty conversational right, Those style. contractions. Yeah. Ain't it, ain't it the truth? Gonna, gonna do it. Not gonna do it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, wouldn't be right. Wouldn't be. Um, you know, so he has a very different style, um, and that style doesn't have the little tiny snippets that you could pull from Justice Kennedy. That is, I don't think anybody's marriage ceremonies in the future are going to contain <laughs> language from um, Bostock the way they contain language from Lawrence or language from Obergefell or language from, um, from Windsor. Uh, but this is a big deal. Um, a, a federal judge whom I know who had nothing to do with these cases said to me afterwards, this is a federal judge in a very red state, said to me, this case will make more of a difference to the rights of gay people in my, in my district uh, than the marriage cases, because everybody needs to work. Not everybody wants to get married. Not everybody is married for their entire lives. Uh, but after you turn you know, 18 or 21, or you finish college, or you finish high school in the United States, you've got to work. Uh, and this gives a majority of Americans protection in the workplace that they didn't have before. And that's critical. How many states did not, under their own state laws, protect uh, gay and transgender workers? Do you know? I think it was about 30. So, so, so really, this does absolutely shift the playing field for almost half the states, uh, more than half the states. 
Yeah, I think it shifts the playing field from more, more than half. It might be about half the states, but yeah, it it shifts the playing field there. I, sh- I should say the other thing it shifts, which is important, is even in the states that did prohibit uh, discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation, I don't know whether in all of those states, if you won your case, you got attorney's fees, which could matter to your ability to get a lawyer uh, and uh, to bring suit on your behalf. So it might, and and this also allows you to go into federal court which may also, in a state that has elected judges, uh, make a difference. So, so, so let's go back. Uh, I think you started to say this in the beginning, but I think we should be really clear about the limitations of Title VII. So uh, you started to say you need 15 employees. So that's, I think the statistic I heard, Pam, is that about 18% of gay workers would not be covered because they work in businesses that are too small. Does that ring true to you? It's hard to figure out the number, the percentage of gay workers who wouldn't be covered because we don't know whether gay people are more likely to work for larger employers that already have non-discrimination policies in the first place. What we do know is that the vast majority of American workers, gay or straight, um, work for employers who are covered by Title VII. Uh, Some number of American workers work for employers who aren't covered by Title VII. Um, smaller employers. And one of the things we did in our uh, brief to the court was to say that many of the employers that you might be most worried about the clash between the rights of gay, lesbian, uh, bisexual, and transgender Americans and the uh, the feelings or sentiments or religious beliefs of the employers, many of those employers aren't going to be covered in the first place. Uh, those employers have never been covered. They're free to discriminate on the basis of race, they're free to discriminate on the basis of sex as a matter of Title VII. Now, there are other laws that might that might restrict their rights, but it's not Title VII. Um, and the second group of employers that might be uh, allowed to continue discriminating against LGBT Americans um, uh, are uh, employers uh, who, uh, for example, are discriminating with regard to a position that fits within the ministerial exception, which is a an exception that the Supreme Court wrote into the statute uh, to deal with the First Amendment freedom of religion. And so, for example, an employer uh, with regard to somebody who counts as a minister uh, is entitled to discriminate on the basis of all of the things that Title VII forbids. So a church can decide it's only going to have male priests, or a church could decide it's only going to have white priests, for that matter, as a matter of Title VII. Um, And so, too, it can decide it's only going to have straight priests or, for that matter, it's only going to have transgender priests. It's it's free to discriminate in either direction. Uh, And the Supreme Court has some some cases on its docket this term uh, that they haven't yet decided that are really about the breadth of that ministerial exception. But it's pretty clear that that ministerial exception does not extend to janitors. It does not extend to uh, typists or I.T. professionals or the like. And so those people would be covered. Uh, even if they worked for a religious employee. Uh, And I think the last thing I want to say, I feel like I'm this big thundercloud. I'm trying to like cabin, cabin, cabin the protection. Uh, It is also true that even now with the protection of Title VII, it doesn't end the inquiry, right? You can still 
all it does is it gives you legal recourse to sue your boss. Yeah, you're still going to have to prove that the reason you were fired is because you're gay and not because you didn't keep the accounts correctly or you were fired because you were transgender and not because you came late to work or because you were insubordinate. Um, And that has turned out to be, in a lot of cases involving classic race discrimination or classic sex discrimination or classic religious discrimination to be hard sometimes to prove, which is the employee comes in and says, you're paying me less than my my uh, white counterpart. And the boss says, that's because you're less productive. Uh, and ultimately, a finder of fact, either a jury or a judge is going to have to determine uh, whether there's enough evidence to let you go forward on that. And if there is, whether you whether you've proved it. Right. So this is not about this is not about saying, you know, gay people get a get out of being fired free card. This is about saying they have the right to go in and use this statute and prove that that's the reason why they were fired or not hired in the first place. And and all of these plaintiffs were just explicitly told, don't come back because you're gay. There's no, be- no, that's the thing that's critical is the three cases are quite different. Amy Stevens was told, don't come back because you're transgender. So now she wins that case. But both Gerald Bostock and Don Zarda were told, don't come back in, 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 um, in Gerald Bostock's case, don't come back because you're, uh, you're not doing the accounts correctly. And he says, I was fired because you found out uh, that I was gay when I joined this softball league. And Don Zarda was fired uh, for, making a, uh, for making a client uncomfortable. And it's not clear whether she was uncomfortable because he was gay, which is what he says, or she was uncomfortable because he was touching her in a way that made her uncomfortable, uh, which is what her, her boyfriend, boyfriend said. said. Right. right. And so those are two cases that would still have to, there would still have to be a trial to figure out, well, why was Gerald Bostick fired? Why was Don Zarda fired? Was it because of their sexual orientation or something else? Now, Amy Stevens, we know she was fired for being transgender and that's that's full stop. Right. So the pretext problem in no way goes away. And in fact, uh, in some ways, bosses just get very smart about pretext. That's not a problem, as you say, that we can solve for in other Title VII realms. So it just is what it is. I wonder if um, you can talk for just a minute, Pam, about... Um, this purports to be just about employment discrimination, but I think everybody agrees it ripples out into housing, uh, recent healthcare directives that w- would have allowed for discrimination on the basis uh, of uh, transgender uh, status. I wonder if you can tell us how widely this sweeps and maybe uh, whether it affects the military. So it sweeps very widely because, and this is, you know, you made an allusion to this earlier that it took a long time to get the opinion to load. Um, One of the reasons for that is there's an odd facsimile uh, appendix in Justice Alito's dissent that's a whole bunch of forms from the 1960s that show that government in all sorts of ways was discriminating against gay people back then. But the other appendix to his opinion is a list of a gazillion federal statutes that say you can't discriminate because of sex. And they range from the really um, broad ones like Title VII or Title IX, which covers uh, educational institutions, uh, to ones that are super specific. So there's one of the statutes in his list is about highway funds and the like. And presumably, all of those statutes, the phrase because of sex, uh, has the same quality that the phrase does in Title VII. So 
in that sense, it could be a very broad ruling. Um, there are a lot of areas in which it, where something might be because of sex, but it's not prohibited. So I'll just give you one from Title VII itself, which is Title VII itself says you can discriminate on the basis of sex when the person's sex is what's referred to as a bona fide occupational qualification. It's often shortened to BFOQ. So if it's really necessary under these conditions that only a woman do this thing or only a man do this thing, um, then the employer is entitled to discriminate because of sex. It doesn't change that the discrimination is because of sex. It changes whether it's legal or not. So the example that I, I give is there's a Supreme Court decision, um, and it's a decision we relied on quite heavily for other reasons in, um, in our briefing and argument to the court called Dothard against Rawlinson. And this was a case that said when it comes to prison guards who are involved in observing inmates in intimate settings, that is, for example, watching the inmates shower and the like, conducting strip searches of the inmates, it is a bona fide occupational qualification for a prison system to decide that guarding female prisoners will only be done by female guards and guarding male prisoners will only be done by male correctional officials. And the Supreme Court comes right out and says in that opinion, of course they're being discriminated against because of sex, but that discrimination is defensible. And so conceivably you could have some occasions on which it would be a bona fide occupational qualification that somebody be straight or that somebody be gay. Um, you know, that'll, that'll play out in future cases. So uh, it's important to understand what the Supreme Court held here is that discriminating against somebody for being gay or lesbian or bisexual or transgender is discrimination because of sex. But that's only the first step in an inquiry that then says, and is this sex discrimination legal or not? I think I want to get to the fight about originalism, if that's okay with you, because that's, for me, where it gets just straight up jello wrestling, you know, flinging stuff and, you know, Justice Alito accusing people of being pirates, uh, which is just next level. Um, let's talk for Give a Give me timbers. <laughs> I was going to say R. I think um, there's been a pirate theme uh, in the last couple of Amicus uh, Plus episodes, so it's good to get the pirate stuff in early and often. But I, I think we have everybody laying claim, right? We have a, a majority opinion by Gorsuch that lays claim to uh, originalism and certainly to textualism. Then we have a dissent by Alito that you just uh, mentioned. And then we have a dissent by Justice Gorsuch. And everyone's claiming that they are, in fact, Antonin Scalia's legitimate heir here. Uh, I think his name is cited 21 times in the majority, uh, 19 uh, times in the dissent. Uh, this feels like the Fisher here has something to do with Justice Alito saying, what did the folks who wrote the Civil Rights Act intend? And that's where we get the di dictionary definitions. And Justice Gorsuch saying it doesn't matter what they intended. It matters what the plain language suggests. And that's, a, right, a, a fight between originalism and textualism, I guess. But uh, do you have any thoughts about who has the right of this beyond just the outcome, I guess, is what I'm asking? Sure. So here's the thing. If you had asked the people who passed the Civil Rights Act of 1964 are you protecting people who are gay or people who are transgender? They would have said, we didn't mean to do that. 
And I have no doubt that if somebody had pointed out to them that that is what their words meant in 1964, they would have written an exception into Title VII. The same way that uh, they wrote an exception into the Americans with Disabilities Act, even though mental diseases count as disabilities, that says kleptomania and pyromania don't. So I have no doubt that if people had understood that the natural consequence of their language in 1964 was that they were protecting gay and lesbian Americans from discrimination, they would have written an exception into the statute. But the fact is they didn't write that exception into the statute. Uh, and so uh, this idea that you ask, well, if they had understood better that the language that they used ineluctably, inescapably leads to this conclusion, they would have used different language. That's not, that's not an argument. Um, because it's not absurd to say that this covers gay people. And even Justice Alito at his angriest doesn't say that. He just says, they didn't mean to cover these folks. And to which we say, so what? They did cover them. Um, I don't really think of the majority as being an originalist um, uh, originalist um, opinion at all. It's simply saying these words were understood at the time as referring to male and female, and that's all we're doing here. But it's not originalist in the sense that it's not trying to excavate anything more than that's what dictionaries said in 1964. So it really is the split between textualism, whatever that means. The text, and originalism, whatever that and means. Originalism, whatever that means. And I think we've been sloppy, right? Because we ascribe both to Scalia and Scalia sometimes. I think he was very, very wedded to the notion that he only cared about original public meaning. But I, I think there was some slippage there. And it, in some sense, you can say, okay, this is at least an elegant solution. Now we know we're just looking at the text, right? We're, we're, this is about the words. Uh, and we're now going to hive off any debate about what the framers wanted. So in that sense, maybe. Well, and, and, and now you've got a version in Justice Kavanaugh's dissent of the thing you may remember a lot of us during the 2016 campaign. It, the question was, do you take Trump literally or do you take him oh, seriously? Yes. And now you have Justice Kavanaugh essentially saying, well, there's the literal meaning and then there's the serious meaning, if you will, which is he says literally Justice Gorsuch is right. But I just don't think people would have understood this all this way. And the interesting thing, both about his dissent and Justice Alito's, is they're really ahistoric in the following sense. In 1964, nobody was really thinking about what does it mean to be transgender? They just always assumed that the sex you were assigned at birth went along with the genitalia that a doctor observed as he pulled you out of your mom. And that was the beginning and end. Uh, but there was no discussion of gender identity back then. So Justice Leo says, well, you know, if you look in the dictionary, they didn't say sex means sexual orientation or uh, gender identity. But if you look in dictionary definitions of 1964, the phrase gender identity doesn't appear. The phrase sexual orientation doesn't appear. So it's kind of, you know, it's it's like a party trick to say, well, this isn't how those words were defined then. Um, you know, one of my co-counsel, James Essex uh, from the ACLU, and I were talking as we were writing the briefs and James said, you know, here's an irony. It's precisely because we have been so successful at persuading people that people's sexual orientation is an aspect of their personhood, that the idea of sexual orientation as a category exists. And now we're fighting to go back to, oh, just ignore the phrase sexual orientation altogether. You don't have to use that phrase at all to say 
discriminating against somebody because he's a man who likes men, right? And at several points in the brief, we use that phrase, a man who likes men or a woman who likes women, um, to try and say, look, don't even think about sexual orientation. The fact that you could describe it that way as well as man who likes men is irrelevant to Title VII. And so it's a kind of irony of the case that, you know, our very success at getting people to think about sexual orientation or to think about gender identity um, created uh, the problem that Justice Alito thinks defeats a claim that if the phrase sexual orientation had never been invented, would have been a, a slam dunk claim. Right. That's so interesting. It's almost that like weird literary Harold Bloom belatedness, right? Like we're trying to impose back then something that we all absolutely assume to be true. Uh, and that's... That's so funny because, you know, David Cole, yeah. who argued the, the transgender case... Uh, took a number of classes with Harold Bloom when he... There you have it. So so I think the other fissure here, and and this didn't get as much attention as the the intramural fighting about uh, originalism and and textualism and and, uh, no, I'm Scalia, no, I'm Scalia. But I think it's another uh, Scalia-based fight, and that is giving up on the legislature. (laughs) And it seems to me that one interesting through line in... The, the majority and the dissents is, okay, we all agree. The legislature should have fixed this. Gorsuch is like, cool, cool, cool. It didn't. We're going to just now catch up. Uh, and one of the things that really is scorching both in Sam Alito's dissent and in Brett Kavanaugh's dissent is this, you are legislating from the bench, right? This is the dissents in Obergefell. You are acting as an unelected, uh, uh, unchecked legislature. And I wonder if in addition to getting some kind of clarity on this, how we're going to think about originalism going forward, we got some clarity on how much water do you expect Congress to carry? And Gorsuch seems to just have said, yeah, Okay, we'll do this. Well, I, I don't think that's really quite fair here. I, you know, in constitutional cases, the claim of legislating from the bench is you're taking a law that the people of the here and now, to use Alex Bickle's phrase, a law that the people of the here and now passed, and you're getting rid of it on the grounds that people long ago put in place a system that gets rid of it. So there, you really do have the court overriding the legislative will. Here, the question isn't whether the court overrode the legislative will. The question is whether the words that a legislature used cover the facts before the court. And the fact that the legislature didn't go back and clean this up or clarify it, I mean, that doesn't change the words that are there. So it's not the court legislating. I mean, the court is saying, here's a statute. Here are the words in the statute. Here's what we think the words mean. Now, you can disagree about whether they're getting the meaning right, but they're not claiming the statute never said this, but let's let's do it anyway. I mean, you might remember at the oral argument, the first question I got from the chief justice was a question that was, do you agree with Judge Richard Posner of the Seventh Circuit, who's uh, very much um, uh, has a very different view of judging than the members of the Supreme Court when he said, you know, it's our job to just update statutes if Congress won't. And you'll remember I threw just Judge Posner right <laughs> under the bus. And I said, no, that's not what we're asking for at all. We're just asking you to apply the words of the statute. And then I paused and nobody asked me any questions. This was about three minutes into the argument. I said, okay, well, I'll just reserve the <laughs> remainder of my time, which uh, chivied them out of their burrows and they started asking questions quite, quite vigorously. Um, but 
that is not what we were asking the court to do. We were saying, take, we, we said, for purposes of this argument, let's take the dictionary definitions from 1964 and see where they lead this statute. So we weren't asking the court to update the statute. In fact, what we were asking the court to do was sweep away a bunch of subsequent judicial interpretations that hadn't looked at the language of the statute. So, so that leads me to Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, I, I find his dissent to be deeply weird. Um, and I particularly find that stuff at the end, which is the high fives all around. <laughs> Y'all have fought a good fight and I look forward to the next victory, but sorry. Um, what, what do you make of that? Or am I just fussing about something that isn't worth uh, fussing about. <laughs> I, you know, it was, it was a kind of, it was a kind of junior varsity version of the chief's statement at the very end of uh, his opinion in uh, Obergefell, where he said, look, you know, for people who care about these things, this is like a big victory you should celebrate, but it doesn't have anything to do with the constitution. And this seemed like, this seemed like, you know, he was doing a cover album <laughs> of the <laughs> the chief last words. And, you know, I'm not sure, I'm not sure why. And I'm not sure why once he admitted, which his dissent really does, that the literal words of the statute mean this. And he wasn't claiming that it was absurd to follow the literal words. Um, I'm not sure what, what he was trying to accomplish. I thought it was really quite telling that he didn't join the Justice Alito uh, dissent um, because the Justice Alito dissent is really angry. Um, you know, there's this one kind of weird hypothetical in the middle of it where he says, well, you know, the word sex also refers to sexual urges. Does this mean that rapists are now protected? Which is, you know, which is ridiculous. It's like right up there with saying, aren't we worried that our children are all going to be molested now? You know, um, so I, I wasn't sure what he was trying to accomplish with his dissent other than, other than to say, I don't agree, but I'm not just a Right, Cito. right. No, that's how I read it, too. I think the last thing we really have to get to, at least for you to clarify for me, is what's left on the table. And I think there's a, a lot left on the table. And Justice Alito, we're back to the bathrooms and the locker rooms and, you know, all the stuff that was pervading arguments. But but the religious liberty stuff is is really, I think, the thin edge of the wedge here. And Justice Alito in his dissent really sets that up. And as you said, when you talked about the ministerial exception, really lights the fuse on what has become, even in the days subsequent, this is going to be the next front, which is religious objectors saying the same thing they said after Obergefell, which is, no, you are going to force me to hire people and violate my religion, and this is what's coming, and every single church is now on the line. This was all the tweets that we saw from some of the conservative legal groups that uh, Donald Trump's fundamental promise to evangelicals in 2016 has been betrayed by Neil Gorsuch. Well, yeah, there's that weird statement by Senator Hawley about how the conservative legal movement is now dead. Yeah, there was a lot of of it's now dead. And I thought, man, this is, you know, if the left turned on its justices the way the right does, you know, for for one opinion, then uh, it would be a fascinating world. But my larger question is, what is left on the table and how seriously to take take out the, the conservative legal movement that's fundraising off this, but how seriously to take the argument that 
you know, Justice Gorsuch says, look, all of this religious stuff is going to be solved by RIFRA and the First Amendment and Title VII itself, as you just said. How seriously do we take the fact that it's not clear that this is not going to be swallowed by claims of religious liberty and religious dissenters. One thing is to kind of clear away some of the underbrush there, which is an awful lot of workers are uh, are employed by state and local governments. They, those cases do not have any religious liberty interest in them at all because the government can't have a religious liberty in objecting to homosexuality. So those workers are covered regardless. Then when you have large corporations, leaving aside a couple of idiosyncratic corporations like the ever-troubling, for doctrinal reasons, Hobby Lobby, um, most large corporations don't have a religious objection. Indeed, most large corporations, 200 and something of them filed on our side, have policies that say we don't discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation or on the basis of gender identity. So those employers have already made the statement they don't have a religious objection. And the other thing is, if you're going to raise this religious objection, you're going to have to come into court and say, this is a religious objection. And while the, while the um, correctness of your religious belief isn't at issue, the sincerity is. And so an employer who has no written policies or anything that say we fire fee- people for being gay may find it really hard once they fire somebody who's gay, to come into court and persuade a court that they actually have a religious objection. Um, And even when you have religious employers, a lot of those religious employers do not have an objection to hiring people for large numbers of their jobs on the basis of those people's sexual orientation or gender identity. So for example, if you're talking about large uh, hospitals affiliated with religious organizations, I doubt that they would come into court and say, our hospital has a rule that says that if you are married to a same-sex spouse, you can't be a dietitian, right? So if you think about the areas where there's actual friction, it's areas that involve the propagation of the doctrine of a particular religion uh, in, a very, in a very straightforward way. On top of that, of course, large numbers of very religious employers are very small and they're not covered by this at all. So if you run a daycare center and you have four employees, nothing that happened in Bostock changes your right to say, I only want straight employees or I only want cisgender employees. Um, You know, in the same way that nothing about this prevented you before this from saying, I only want black employees or I only want white employees. I mean, there are other statutes, as I said, that might deal with race, but there aren't other statutes at the federal level that deal with religion or sex or national origin. And so that kind of discrimination by small employers existed before, it can continue to exist. Discrimination by government employers like Clayton County can't do that anymore. And then there are some gray areas, you know, of cases that are going to be litigated in the middle. And and that's where we're all watching to see the ministerial exception and to see really how wide that lane is going to be, right? If you're not even requiring somebody to be a member of your religion, uh, can you have a religious objection to to that? And and are you exempt from all fair employment laws, all labor laws and er everything like that? You know, and I expect I expect there'll be some discussion about. Uh, you know, regulations on this, there'll be lots of litigation. Um, But that doesn't take away from the fundamental 
holding of the case, which is discriminating against somebody for being gay, for being lesbian, for being transgender, or for being, um, uh, you know, bisexual, is discrimination because of that person's sex. Before I say goodbye, I absolutely have to ask you an utterly unrelated question that I've wanted to ask you since 10 million years ago when you testified in the impeachment hearing. Uh, One of the things you said at the impeachment hearing, the thing that plays on a loop in my head, which is not the joke that uh, was later what you got internet famous for, but was the warning you made about if Donald Trump can be allowed to more or less extort (laughs) the head of a foreign government to cooperate in an investigation and you said Donald Trump could just tell a governor. I'm not. I don't have the words in front of me. You'll say it better than me. He could just tell a governor, "I won't give you aid unless you help me." And everyone went, "Ha ha ha! That's silly." And then uh, we saw in the months after that's exactly what's happened uh, in response to COVID. So I just want to give you an opportunity because I do feel like that point you made got lost a little bit in the whirlwind. And I I guess I want you to just reflect for a minute, if you would, or you can just spike the football and say, I told you so, and we could wrap. But I I think I want to give you an opportunity to say, just in light of what you've seen in the month since, this really has happened under our noses, and we didn't all clock it. Yeah. So I could just say, I told you so. But the reason why I used the hypothetical at the uh, impeachment hearings, which was just imagine that you are the governor of Louisiana or Texas, and there's a natural disaster. And you call the president and you say, I'd like you to send the aid that Congress has authorized under these circumstances. And the president says, I'll do it, but only if you do me a favor, which is uh, something political. Um, You know, the reason I used the hypothetical at the hearings was because I thought everybody would understand, of course, that's wrong. Of course, that's impeachable conduct. And then they would reason outward from that to and doing the same thing with regard to the Ukraine is uh, is impeachable. Um, And I don't think people. I don't think people I think the people on on the one side of the, the committee bought that. And the other side just ignored it completely. And then, of course, that's exactly what happened. We, you know, the president says, if the governor of Michigan isn't nicer to me, I'm not going to send aid for COVID. I'm not going to send aid for the flood. Uh, If they don't do something about sanctuary cities, I'm not going to send aid to the cities. And, And the idea that you would hold up aid that goes to help Americans who are in crisis because you want people to to flatter you or the like is just so antithetical to our notion of government and what this nation is about. I just find it stunning. Pam Carlin is co-director of Stanford's Supreme Court Litigation Clinic. She's an assistant counsel and cooperating attorney for the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, and she served as a deputy assistant attorney general in the Civil Rights Division in the U.S. Justice Department. In the Obama era, she's also co-author of many, many books on the Constitution and the law. And I would be really uh, unfair if I failed to mention that in Justice Alito's dissent in Bostock, she's referred to as, quote, the attorney representing the employees, a prominent professor of constitutional law. Pam, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. As always, Dahlia, this is one of the high points 
of an otherwise sorry life. (laughs) From my guest room to yours. Uh, Thanks, Pam. And that is a wrap for this extremely lengthy, but we think vital episode of Amicus. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you so much for your letters and your questions and your feedback. You can always keep in touch with us at amicus at slate.com. You can also find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcasts.